this. So we're up to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to um, chapter 6, verse 9. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their households, husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave, up, gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they fed but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy a long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, Obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only in, to win their favour when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one, of, each one for whatever good they do. Wherever they, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favouritism with him. Our Lord, our Heavenly Father, help me today. Help me to speak truth. Help us to have open hearts. May this word be life-giving for us in our community and may our lives tell the story of the good news of Jesus. Amen. Well, there are three things I want to highlight in this passage. A difficulty, a complexity and a really good picture. There's a difficulty because this is a culturally very strange passage for us. There's so many things in there that we immediately react to when we hear it. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Slaves, slaves? What? <laughs> slaves, obey your earthly masters. In the culture Paul addresses here, 
originally had a fairly standard way of organising and running households. That's very different to ours. And today we have tonnes of options and permutations that didn't exist then. They weren't possible for people. Which leads us to the complexity, doesn't it? Because the matter that the way that we operate in our closest relationships with family, close friends, and in work is varied. Our household arrangements vary. Some of us live alone, some share houses, some are in family households. Some um, families have two parents, some have solo parents, some households have three generations under one roof. Some of this is by choice and some of it isn't. Some of us are single, some of us are married, some of us are divorced. Some of us would love to be married or to be parents, but it hasn't happened. Some of us wish that we hadn't got married. Life is not always what we imagined or hoped for. Others of us here are content and happy. There is enormous variation. And when I've been preparing, I've just had all of you in my mind. All of us are someone's children. And our experience of that is also varied. Some of you live at home now with your parents. I'm looking around the room <laughs> at my kids. You are dependents growing into independence. And that has its ups and downs. And I hope no one here is a slave, but many of us know what it's like to work for someone, and some of you are someone's boss. And there are great experiences of this too, and others among us have felt utterly powerless under poor leadership in the workplace. And then there's everything in between, isn't there? And so we want to take this into account, and there's no way I can speak to every experience today except to acknowledge it now and to say that I hope the general principles will be helpful um, in whatever close relationships that you have. And as I speak, the question you might want to ask yourself is, in what relationships am I the powerful person? And in what relationships am I the person who is more vulnerable? And how can I apply what's here to my relationships so that we all flourish and so that Jesus is made known to others? And the third thing, which is the great picture, is that this is actually the picture, believe it or not, of re relationships in the resurrection life. Because what Paul is saying here is that if we know Jesus, then our closest relationships will mirror this. If we know the Lord Jesus and how he gave his own life up for us, even though he was the Lord of the universe, then we will either lay down power that we have and act for others for their good, or if we're not in the power position, we will serve those with power over us as if we were serving the Lord Jesus. Knowing that we serve the perfect servant king sets us free, even when it's hard. And now immediately and up front, I'm going to add this, that submission is within reason because thankfully in our culture, we have more options and choices to move away from difficult and abusive relationships. And so I want to say that I, Rob, who's our locum at the moment, Peter, Patrick, will never say to you, stay in a relationship where you are being abused one way or another. To spouses, to children, to people in the workplace, we will stand by you and support you if you are experiencing that kind of difficulty in your life. We are committed to your well-being. The goal of this passage is flourishing as people who are loved by Jesus and as part of our church family. So if you ever need to speak about a matter like that, 
you can come to me and I will listen and I will support you in confidence as you figure out what's next. So let's get back to the difficulty, the complexity and the great picture. Let's understand who Paul is talking to here. The first century Roman household, generally speaking, looked like this. Wives, right, women married into a household. They moved from their father's house to their husband's house, from daughter to wife. Wives here are asked to submit, to follow the husband's lead and respect him. Children and slaves are told to obey. This was their life. There was nothing shocking to the first readers of this letter in those things. This was standard. What's um, new is when Paul says to them, do this as you would the Lord Jesus. That is, remember, you serve a higher power. As you yield to earthly authority, you are showing what it looks like to submit to Christ. The servant king is your ultimate authority. And in the Roman household, there was one significant man. And in the passage, he is spoken to three times. He is the husband. He is the father. He is the master of the household slaves. And the truly shocking thing in this passage is that Paul reframes what it looks like for one man to have such enormous power over others. Can you see why Paul calls the husband the head of the wife here, like Jesus is the head of the church? Because the husband, father, master owned everything and everyone, and he directed the way that things happened in the home. It's just how it was. And as you can imagine, the kind of man who is the head of the household, the one that guides the rest of the house, um, depending on what kind of man that was, would really affect everything and everyone. So what does Paul have to say to this one man? He says, love your wife like you love your own body, right? So the image is what, what we've had in the rest of Ephesians. Jesus, as the head of the church, and we as the united body under him, the good and gracious guide and leader. And Paul wants this one man to be like Jesus. This is his role. Women were so vulnerable back then. Paul wants women to be safe and protected and nurtured and to flourish. He wants it because this is God's agenda for them. And so he says to the one man who has power to make this happen, sacrifice your own interests for her. Be like Jesus. You can see in the church that Paul actually really upheld women as leaders too in the church. We think about the Priscilla and Aquila who appear in Acts, and it's really clear that he sees them as a partnership and that he really values her. I mean, it sounds like she was a woman of independent means. But, you know, that was a good thing that they opened their house and they grew a church together. It was a, there was a mutuality and a unity in that marriage that we can see. And Paul um, upheld it. Well, to this same one man, um, Paul says, do not exasperate your children. He says it just to the father, okay? So this is why I'm saying he's speaking to this one person who has the power. You know, the first century Roman father has the power to flourish or neglect their children even to adulthood. Think about the girls who don't get married, right? Or the young men who want to be independent. This is a lot of power that you hold to set them free or to um, keep them under your wing. Think of how countercultural Jesus was about kids in his time. Let the children come to me, he said. Don't stop them. He said to adults, be like a child. He said to adults, if anyone hurts a child, it would be better that a millstone was tied around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Jesus loved children, and Paul's agenda here is the same. 
To the powerful parent, Paul says, be like Christ, love, do not exasperate or frustrate. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Bring your children up in resurrection life. Let them share in it and let them flourish in it. And I can say as a parent, because (laughs) it's not easy to do this because we're not Jesus, but if you bring your children up to know Jesus, what you're doing is letting them know the good parent, the heavenly father, Jesus Christ, the perfect servant king. So that is one reason why it's a really good idea. Now, Paul's not trying to change the whole Roman culture. He is speaking to Christians in the church and he's reframing what is normal for them. And you can see right at the end when he speaks to masters, Paul knows something really important about people that that culture did not understand. He says, masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. We are equal under God. Husbands, wives, parents, children, masters, slaves. In Galatians 3, Paul puts it this way. He says, in Christ there is no Jew or Gentile, no male or female, no slave or free. I want to say something about slaves in the first century In case you're wondering why Paul doesn't just sort of outright condemn slavery, this is a question that comes up with this passage. I'm just going to read a bit from Tim Keller because he's he's helpful on this. He says, In the ancient world there were many slaveries. There is good evidence that much of the slavery was very harsh and brutal, but there's also lots of evidence that many slaves were not treated like African slaves would be. But there's evidence that they lived normal lives and were paid the going wage but they weren't allowed to quit or change employers. And so this is why they were slaves. They were in slavery for an average of 10 years. And a person could become a slave for a set period of time in order to work off debts because there was no such thing as bankruptcy in the first century. You paid your debts off. In the Jewish tradition, there's that year of Jubilee too, where you forgive people their debts after they've worked seven years. So, you know, there's a kind of grace built into it. And, you know, slaves are not maybe what we picture But still, (laughs) you know, we don't want to advocate for slavery, but we can see why Paul would not address it the way we might and how he's working within the culture. But to be a slave, no matter what, was to be a very vulnerable person. In the world of the early church and even now, there are distinctions made and power dynamics at play. Authority is not a bad thing. Sometimes it's very necessary, isn't it? I mean, you can't let a five-year-old child just move out and live their own life. Uh, But for the Christian, we understand the ultimate authority is Christ. So the complexity is our very different context. And our culture is in many, many ways so different. And a lot of that is thanks to the influence of Christianity on the West. You know, women do actually have much more power and agency nowadays. And they don't need marriage to be secure. Men and women are regarded as equals. And when... Paul wrote in Galatians that in Christ there is no male or female. We are equal and one in Christ Jesus. It was an extraordinary thing to say back then. So what we don't want to do with a passage like this is take back the freedoms that we have from understanding that we are in Christ and made one family and that we are all heirs of the life Jesus brings us. We never want to point to this passage and say, let's return to the first century model. We would say, let's not go back to the 1950s where men went to work and women had no choice but to stay at home and no financial independence or whatever else, whatever else 
you want to imagine that they would lack from that. We have to celebrate and we should celebrate the choices and freedoms that women have in the name of Jesus. But the problem, I think, in our culture, like there's good and bad, isn't there? The problem is that even though we've achieved more freedom and equality between men and women, even though children are now heard as well as seen, even though we find the idea of household slaves unthinkable, all these freedoms have been won through fighting for justice, demanding rights for ourselves and for others, which is fine to a point because God loves justice and he creates us equal in his image and it's worth fighting for. But the dynamic of the Christ-like relationship and the personal relationship is not about protecting and fighting for your own rights. It's about lifting up the other person, a mutuality and a unity of lifting up your partner, your children, your close friends and caring about their interests before our own. It's about love and grace. This is how we truly flourish, when others are supporting and championing us, when other people see us as valuable, precious children of God. The Christian marriage, household and friendship should be a mini picture of what we had of the church back in chapter 4, a unity that appreciates the other person, the differences and the gifts that they bring to the relationship and a shared desire to see each other flourish under Christ. That's the goal, isn't it, that Paul talks about in the passage, so that we might be presented blameless before Christ. One of the reasons we react against this passage, especially to the marriage dynamic at the start, I think is because generally speaking, women are still the more vulnerable person in the partnership. They're still fighting for their rights. Women are still paid less if they bear children, experience infertility, their bodies become very vulnerable. They have more breaks in their careers, which puts things like super at risk, puts their end of life care at risk. You name it. I mean, you can name it. Over the past few years, a new term has emerged, the mental load. You heard this, the idea that although many women work full time outside the home, they still carry the burden of managing the household. It's all up here. They know what it takes and they make sure it happens, even in the most functional happy homes. And this is generally speaking, this is statistically speaking, from studies. And I want to acknowledge too that sometimes it's in reverse, okay? Sometimes that there are men who really wrestle and carry the burden of this. But we know more often it is women who are struggling for real equality still in the culture and in the home. And so in love and kindness, I'm going to say to the guys today who are married what Paul says. You need to love your wives as Christ loves the church. This is a huge thing and almost impossible because you are not Jesus, okay? So when you come to this and you say, you know, love your wife as the church because Jesus loves the church, we don't suddenly go, because I'm so much more like Jesus, you know, this is a mistake. You will make mistakes and you will want to protect your own interests. But if you can see that you have advantages and agency in your life to agree degree that your wife doesn't have, then you need to lay down that down and to love in a self-sacrificial way. And if you're not sure, then you need to talk to your wife and ask her, is this the case? Let's talk about this. Is this, are we, you know, are we um, caring for one another? Do you have the freedom? Do we have the freedom that we need? Do we have the rest that we need? You negotiate these things. And sometimes we have blind spots. And wives... <laughs> I'm just preaching from the passage here. If you see your husband loving you in a self-sacrificial way, that is, the goal is to flourish you, then I say submit to that. Respect that. Because that is a good thing that he's doing for you. 
Um, I really hesitate to use my own marriage as an example. Because <laughs> let me tell you, we have wrestled with this passage um, between us a lot. But I was reflecting on our marriage. You know, we've been married for 30 years. And for over 10 years, by choice, definitely this was a choice that I made. I had no income. I spent over 10 years raising our kids up, being at home with our kids, and doing ministry in a voluntary and um, volunteering in various places. And there's no way really that I could have done that happily if Rob didn't lay down the power. Because he had an enormous amount of power over me. I just didn't feel it, okay? He, he earned all the money and I pretty much just took it and spent it. <laughs> um, and it wasn't that he said, you can spend this money I earned. He never, ever, ever said that to me. The understanding was that we were not just a partnership but a union. What we did, it was ours. It was our money. It was our home. These were our kids. And the other thing he did was he would come home and bath the kids every day for years because by that time of day I was spent and he knew it. And that was sacrificial because there were other things he could have been doing, I'm sure. I just didn't think about it. That's for me a good example as I look, about, as I look back. Now, he's not perfect. He's not here. He's off at Fairfield. And he always shakes his head when we talk about these things because, you know, you feel your own lack. But the thing is that we are wrestling all the time with this idea of what does it look like to, to show people what it is to know Jesus in our relationship and the way we look after our kids. And we've made many mistakes there too. The foundation of our household is Christ um, and imperfectly, but by his grace, we tell his story. And I encourage you to encourage one another to do that as well. Now, to all our parents, let's move on to the parent bit. The responsibility we have in raising kids is mind-blowing. Paul says, bring them up to know Jesus. We will not get it right. And the thing we need to do is apologise to our kids when we use our power to control them or to to be harsh with them. That is a great way of declaring the gospel to them, to say you're sorry and ask for forgiveness. Kids, there's a word for you here too. When your parents say, we're going to church or it's time for youth group or let's read the Bible and pray, then the thing to know is that they are doing it for your good. And if you get to know your Heavenly Father, then you will learn what perfect love is. Now, if you are in charge at work, let's move on to the slaves and masters. (laughs) Or let's just reframe it a little bit. You know, if you are in charge at work, if you are a boss, you need to treat your employees well. That is more public now than just in the household. And there are plenty of laws that will make sure you do this. But if you belong to the Lord Jesus, you will have in front of your mind that all people are valuable and precious to him and deserve to be regarded with compassion and dignity. And you will testify to Jesus' loving leadership of you if you lead others in this way. And you may know of terrific Christian leaders who lead in that way. And what a great testimony that is to others who know that they follow Jesus. And I'm looking at Taity in the back row you know, who's in a significant leadership role in her school. And people know that she loves Jesus and that she loves the kids and the staff and she works for their good. There's so much that we could say, and I hope it opens discussion, but I want to say that at Mary Creek, we really care about healthy relationships. That's why we run the life courses. It has been really encouraging to see the parents um, in the parenting course thinking through what it looks like to um, love their kids well. 
The marriage course has been good for many of us over the years as we work at building marriages about, which are about serving our partners, about true mutuality, about good listening. And um, there are opportunities that I think we should take up more about what it looks like to be workers and bosses as well. But in that church, um, which reflects the wider community we're part of, there are many close relationships which don't fit into this household picture that Paul is speaking about. And I think these relationships really matter as well because a lot of households and a lot of families these days are the ones that we choose for ourselves. Significant friendships also deserve to be shaped by this good news of the gospel. Let's face it, if we can fall into patterns of power play and self-interest there as well, can't we? But imagine this. If all our significant relationships had this grace dynamic, this servant dynamic what would it look like to others to come be invited into your friendship group or into your household or into your neighborhood group or your community group and see people actually loving and serving one another and what would it mean for us to experience this community together I'm encouraged by our community by the way (laughs) but I want to preach this so that we continue to remember that it's not that one man from the Roman household. It's that one man, Jesus Christ, isn't it? Who is our master, who is our big brother. He is the the first one in the family and he ushers us in and he says, "We, we we are one and we do this together and we love one another in the way that I have loved you. I hope in term three, I'm going to give a, that some of you will come to the friendship course, which I'm writing at the moment. Because I really think, especially here, where we live, that we need to address friendship and all those other relationships in the same way that we're talking about marriage and parenting and the work relationship. Because we have an opportunity, actually, to flourish life in the neighbourhood by being exceptional friends. So will you think ahead? I'm writing this course so that it mirrors the kind of marriage parenting courses. So the idea would be that you come with a friend or a significant other. It doesn't matter, actually, It'll be general principles about building healthy relationships. And there are a lot of lonely people out there, a lot of people who really need connection and the kind of love and grace that Jesus offers us.